You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian I'm here with Paul, and uh, we are going to be talking about a, a couple different topics today, all of them uh, related to cognitive biases and logical fallacies and all those fun things. But I figured, you know, if, if you're going to talk about thinking well, you got you to gotta go to the relevant expert. You got to go to the professional. And Paul, you're a philosopher, so you're a professional thinker. Is that a fair description of what you do? What, what thought, exactly do you do? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you got to go to the experts. And unfortunately, we don't have one today, so we're just going to talk to Paul. We just, <laughs> we, we called every expert we could, and instead we ended up with Paul. Philosophy, but Paul. I, I do think that uh, it's a unique training you get. You're essentially trained to think, and you have to like, I just imagine you guys, you're like, intellectual gladiators you know you're just like disagreeing with one another and sparring and then that helps you to be a better thinker in life not a better uh person enabled like morally but but just at least you can think better thoughts or it could be it should be it should be but you know sometimes it isn't you know i'm i'm a i'm a firm proponent that all philosophical that all education should make people better and if you're not if you're not becoming better then there's something wrong do you think the better you get at philosophy, the worse you get at social skills? Is there like an inverse correlation? That's probably true for most philosophers that you meet. I mean, you'd know this. You hung out with a bunch of You're philosophers. You're a very awkward person. I'm just saying this about you. I'm Thanks. like, this Paul is, is brilliant, but something's <laughs> got to give. You know what I mean? It's like you can't, have, a... yeah, you can't have that much intellectual firepower and also be able to like not be awkward around people. You it's know? like your brain has to make a decision where to divert resources. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, you're, yeah. you're not going to no. need the social bones in your body. That's right. It's like, look, <laughs> you're going to be, you're going to be a genius. The problem is you're not going to be no able to tell a joke. Talk to you. You, yeah, yeah you, no one's right. going to be able to want to talk to you. You're not going to, you're going to be very strange. This uh, is why I always sip cocktails by myself at parties. There you go. And people just, just sitting walk there away from conversation. Actually, you could just be sitting there in a corner, just like furiously scribbling notes on a napkin. You know, and they right. think you're writing something, so they just leave you alone. And you can... I'm just like every conversation that I'm in, I'm just scheming on how to like broach it with a philosophical topic. Like I'm just not even listening to it. people are talking about the weather or sports. I'm just like, how do I make this topic about philosophy? There you and then go. I just like Trojan horse it and try to make it about something more interesting. Well, <laughs> well I, I kind of want to now that I know this, I want to like see this in action. Like people are talking about football and you just like. What is the material cause of a football? And what's the formal well, cause say, of football? You've seen me do this. I'll just say something like, it's probably unethical to watch football. Oh, then, that's true. That's oh my it's, gosh. It's, it sounds we should very do, innocuous. Oh. And then it's just like, everyone just explodes. We it's should do so a podcast on that. Although I don't want to, because I don't want to be convicted to not watch football. So I know I that's, just that's, be that's one way to, that's exactly the problem with not studying philosophy. Oh, you just gosh. sit in the muck of your own ignorance forever. Well, I mean, you also think football is soccer, so. Which also probably has some ethical issues. Oh, there you go. Look how the. Especially with the World Cup coming up. (laughs) Yeah. Look how the turns have tabled. Look how the turns have tabled. Are you going to watch the World Cup or are you going to be sitting on your ethical high horse? You know? I sold my ethical high horse so I can afford to watch the World Cup. (laughs) That's hilarious. There you go. We (laughs) all have our vices. We all have to make decisions from time to time. And for you. You sold your soul just to watch the World Cup. I don't even pay attention to like who's even playing in the World Cup. Do we even know? It is the most watched sporting event on the planet. And Americans just don't even give a rat's butt about it. Yeah. Well, it's it's also kind of boring. I mean, like you can't have. You think football is more exciting than you think baseball is like Americans. Oh, no, not baseball. I, I think baseball is really boring. But 
Okay, good. I think one thing is Americans like high scoring games, you know, except for hockey, but hockey makes up for it because you're allowed to just like punch each other on the ice <laughs> and have just brutal violence. But maybe, maybe this is a social commentary on Americans. Like we just have such short attention spans. We need something to be happening every single second in order to enjoy it. Whereas soccer is a much more laid back. It's about the beauty of stringing together a bunch of passes and like, it's enjoyable even watching like 11 guys string together as a team, a cohesive unit, like an attacking play, stringing together passes with their feet and not their hands. And it's just the annoying thing thing is I'm like, they string it all together, like this beautiful harmony, you know, whatever. (laughs) And, uh, and then they miss. And then it's like, I don't know. It just, it, it feels, it feels like a lot of effort with a lot of futility. You know? And that makes the goals all the more exciting. This is why people literally leap out of their seats when it's a goal. Oh my gosh. I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't not like soccer. I'll watch soccer, but, uh, and you play I, soccer too. I we well, played soccer well, a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I used oh, to be man. fast and then I had no endurance. And so, and then you became a, a minister of the gospel and you, right. Gave exactly. up everything, including exactly. your speed. <laughs> right, exactly. What is it like Spurgeon said, if you can do anything else, it's like, what if you can't do anything else? Like you literally are not qualified. <laughs> it's like, it's like no one else would take me. And I had to, no. Um, hopefully that's not the case. But yeah. all that being said, maybe in this little banter that we've had in the beginning, we've revealed some cognitive biases in our mind. That is such a tenuous segue. Well, but I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this is something I, 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 I do want to talk about, especially with you, because I think you've done a lot of thinking about this, or at least you see this as a philosophy professor and you're dealing with undergrads, the bastions of intellectual insight and cultural commentary. Right. And uh, you probably encounter a lot of bad thinking or even worse, bad thinking uh, presented as if it's really good thinking. And uh, this, this list, there's, I've got a list of 10 cognitive biases that I got from uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's wrote, he's written a couple books. He wrote Coddling of the American Mind. He wrote The Righteous Mind. Um, oh, a lot of stuff with mind. I didn't even realize that. Did I get that title right? I think so. The Righteous but, Mind, uh, Colin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, a cognitive bias. I mean, wh- what's your experience been with cognitive biases? What What is that? How have you experienced it? Why is that a problem? Co- I mean, cognitive biases are basically just we're not born neutral in terms of our cognition and the way that we think. Like our brain has developed, I mean, humans have developed shortcuts uh, in how we reason. And so how we process information, how we arrive at conclusions, cognitive biases are just shortcuts, mental heuristics, um, ways that our psychology processes information to deliver certain outputs and conclusions. So all that to say, when we when we think, when we reason, we're using cognitive tools. We're using um, abilities that are, you know, we're predisposed to think and judge in certain ways. And a cognitive bias is just a tendency that predisposes us to make conclusions of a certain kind uh, versus another. So one one really famous cognitive bias is uh, loss aversion. So the human brain and human tendencies, human behaviors are really, really averse to losing anything. Um, and so we, we reason in ways that try to avoid uh, losing anything because uh, losing resources, losing materials, losing things 
is such a huge resource cost that um, we have pre like predisposed inclinations that move us away from um, wanting to lose things. So like basically like there, there are there are ruts in our brain that predispose us to think in certain ways and sometimes make us uh, reason poorly. We talked about is, is that tribalism. a bad thing though? Yeah, like Sometimes, is that always yeah. a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, it seems I mean, like these are like these are shortcuts that help us to make snap judgments, and we kind of need that to live, right? I mean, we make so many of those judgments throughout the day, right? And isn't it? I mean, it's good to have loss aversion, isn't it? Or in some instances, I guess maybe not when you're investing in a stock or or you're trying to be uh, high reward, high risk type type ventures. Yeah, it yeah it. These shortcuts can be helpful. Uh, I mean, the reason that we make these snap judgments is because we can't always, at every single moment, do all of the computation and processing behind um, what it would take to to come up with some sort of judgment or conclusion. But um, the snap judgments just help us make decisions quickly, expediently, efficiently. But sometimes we get things wrong, um, and so biases will incline us to make certain kinds of judgments and conclusions, sometimes too fast, sometimes unwarranted, sometimes not on the basis of the best available evidence. And so that's just something that we need to be wary of. And so Heist points out lots of ways that we do this, and it's good to be mindful of them so that hopefully we can begin to avoid these poor um, pathways of reasoning. We don't want to be too fast, too furious. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was so terrible. That was really bad. So yeah. here are some of the... Uh, Here's some of the biases he lists out. Um, oh, okay. Here's another question: How are these different than fallacies? Like you know, you talk about you. You've talked before about logical fallacies, like formal, formally logical, or informal. Like what? What are the different kinds of fallacies we're talking about here? What's between a fallacy and a cognitive bias? A bias is just a tendency. So we have this tendency, this disposition, this inclination to reason uh, along certain kinds of ways. So all, all, the, all that the saying is that we have, we have these temptations and tendencies and shortcuts that are just hardwired into our psychology, into our thinking. Fallacies are, I mean, fallacy is just the name that we give to the actual error in reasoning that we can arrive at. Right. So when we say that something is an ad hominem, uh, that's an informal fallacy. What we're saying is you have your conclusion there is inappropriate. You have ruled out the merit of a conclusion or the appropriateness of a conclusion on the basis of something about the person, right? Oh, he's Asian. I don't listen to Asians, so therefore his conclusion is a bad one. Hey, right? That's yeah, an ad hominem yeah, yeah, fallacy, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? There, you're describing an error in the actual conclusion. You're, you, you've described something that's gone wrong in the reasoning process, but you're not describing like the cognitive pathway that leads to that kind of fallacy. So the bias is the pathway or the strategy or the shortcut that our cognition employs. The fallacy is the name of the actual error in reasoning. What's a formal fallacy? If there's an informal fallacy, what's a formal fallacy? Formal fallacy is just a name that we give to in logic when you make a a logical move that is inappropriate. Um, when you map out, for example, uh, on, on the syllogism, you've got a couple premises and you pull out the wrong conclusion from a couple of premises. Uh, and you, there are some names that we give to fallacies that are misapplications of logical rules. Um, and so 
Yeah. The, the distinction is just one about one that we can track in syllogisms and one that we, when we do formal logic, when we write out symbols, when we put paragraphs or text into logical sentences, and we can spot errors in that sort of form, we call that a formal fallacy. But an informal fallacy is just the kind of stuff that you see people doing on Facebook and Twitter and the internet. Gotcha. So cognitive biases, these, these are these are types of uh, inclinations or, or ways our minds are bent toward certain things that can distort our logical thinking. So they're not right. bad in and of themselves. It's just we have to slow down and make sure that they're not, that they're operating correctly, I guess. Right. Um, so for example, if you have the loss aversion bias, you want to go, well, is this rational that I'm, you know, I, I feel this way. Maybe the mm -hmm. loss is worth it. I have to take some time and think about it. I can't just go off my gut instinct, even though, uh, in certain cases it might be good to go with that. Right. Um, so here are some distorted distortions that, uh, Jonathan Haidt lists out. It's actually framed in the book as kind of a counseling kind of thing more than like logical debate, but I think there's still some, some utility to talking about it because he talks about how you use cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, just fixing thoughts in your mind and ways that we lie to ourselves, which is what I find really interesting about his work. So here, here are some ways that we distort, uh, he calls them categories of distorted automatic thoughts. So before we even think of it, it's sort of like it's just a lens through which we see the world and we don't ever mm -hmm. question the accuracy of the lens. And so he's trying to get us to look at our lens and be like, it's cracked a little bit. Right, just, be, right. just be wary of that. First Hashtag one is, original sin. There, oh, there you go. Look at that. Mm. First one is uh, mind reading. You assume that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts, uh, which is also connected to fortune telling. You predict the future negatively. So you'll say things will get worse. There's danger ahead. I'll fail that exam. I won't get the job. Um, that's an interesting one. Mind reading, assuming that you know what other people think without evidence. Um, that's not really a logical debate kind of thing. That's more of just like a social reality. It's it's a cognitive bias. I mean, it's it's one it's one temptation that we are inclined towards just by virtue of our psychology. Um, and it is sometimes we do do that correctly. Like we read off people's um, intentions and their mental states and their desires from their behavior. We look at someone, we say, oh, look, she's sad. Oh, look, she looks like she wants to kill me. I need to run away, right? When we judge mental states off of behavior, but sometimes we like we do that on the basis of insufficient evidence. And we say, uh, we come to unwarranted conclusions. And that that's exactly what Height is trying to get at. Um, we are proceeding from insufficient evidence to a conclusion about what someone's thinking. And it is not always for the best. So it's not saying that you're automatically wrong. It's just saying you're not automatically right. If you're doing so on the basis of insufficient evidence, right? Like right. you'll That's say, true. well, she hates me. And I'll say, well, why do you think that? He's like, I don't know. I just have a feeling I'm like, well, there's no, like what, yeah, what's but different the people what have, can you point to? Don't you think different people have different standards of, of sufficient evidence? So you, you could say, oh, you know, I think she's mad at me because, you know, she's sitting there quietly. And for you, you're like, that's clearly enough evidence. But for someone else, it's not enough evidence. You know, is this, I, this is where it gets kind of- speaking from experience, Brian? No, no, no. <laughs> no one's, a, no girl has ever been mad at you. Right, right, exactly. No, but but it's it's one of those things where I, I understand the heart behind it, but I'm kind of like, you know, sometimes you do 
like some some people do read people really well. Sure. Yeah. But the question is supposed to be objectively, sometimes there just isn't enough evidence or you're making too much of one piece of evidence and it doesn't warrant the conclusion that you think it does. Or sometimes um, it's not to the, to the degree that you think it is. Sure. Right. Sometimes it's like, right. oh, they were frustrated, but it wasn't to the degree that you thought. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, that, that, that leads to another one. He talks about catastrophizing. This is an interesting one. You believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. Um, interesting. I am trying to think of if I've ever experienced that. Yeah. Are you a catastrophizer? I don't think so. I You're think a philosopher. I to minimize. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's better to live that way. Maybe. Then you don't get disappointed. So catastrophizing is thinking that something is going to like destroy you. And so you won't be able to handle it. Well, like the examples, it would be terrible if I failed. Oh, I see. Whereas yeah. people like, yeah, the, the advice that you get from that or the counsel you get is you'll be okay. Like it's not the end of the world. That That's yeah. the solution, right? Uh, so we, we tend to make a bigger deal out of it than it needs to be. Well, one of the things that I think is helpful about this is, is number eight, where he talks about black and white thinking. Mm. And I think this is an easy way that we tap out. So he says, you view events or people in all or nothing terms. So on a personal level, you're saying, I get rejected by everyone, or it was a complete waste of time. But but there's also like, and I think he says elsewhere in the book, where black and white thinking is about like, either it's this or it's that. Right. And you exclude the middle, that it could be something else. You know, and I, I think that that's a huge mistake that people make in a lot of discussions on politics or social issues or theology even. Um, and Do you I think a specific example, um, I, I think when we talked about, uh, um, when we talked with Guillaume about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, he was, he, he was just kind of oh, saying, yeah. uh, uh, it's either totally workspace or grace or, you know, when in fact it's a little more complicated than that. I think that maybe that, I, I don't know if that's a, that's a great example, but yeah, um, I mean, we're, we're not, we're not naturally nuanced. Right. Maybe that's one way of putting it. Yeah. We, right. we, it, it's easy to gravitate towards an extreme position and not settle somewhere in the middle. Now, this is a question I have. Okay. You can help me because you're a philosopher. This is your, this is what you do. Um, you know about like people talk about like third wayism, where it's like, don't be Democrat or Republican, be something in the middle, be right. a mixture. Don't be conservative or liberal, be a mixture. Take a, you know, like just find the halfway point between two extremes and you're always going to be right. Or that's like yeah. the superior position, but that's, that's not always true, right? If it's between no. Nazis and you know someone else, you don't want to take a middle position between that, right? And you don't want to adopt like you don't want to take like like pro-abortionism from the Democratic side, and then like we hate immigrants from a conservative side and make that your worldview. That would be like the worst ever political position. That would be hilarious if you ran on that platform. You'd be like, yeah. wow. But um, so it's not just about yeah, it's not just about picking something in between. You're right. And I see black and white thinking a lot in my own mind and in when I when I see people talking in like the public sphere. And it's just it's tiring because if you try to get out of black and white thinking, someone who's thinking black and white is gonna think that you're thinking white if they're thinking black. Right. Does that make sense? Like if you're mm -hmm. trying to find nuance. And I also know that nuance can be a way of avoiding actually stating a position too. 
So it's it's this weird thing where it's like, when are you being convicted? When are you being nuanced? How do you how, how do you personally get out of black and white thinking? You're right. The, the solution is not just to pick some halfway point between two extremes, because oftentimes, sometimes the extreme view is correct. Uh, in the mid 19th century, radical abolitionism, people who thought not just one, we should abolish slavery, but two, we should like enfranchise and allow African-Americans to, to vote, to own property. That was considered an insane, extreme position, right? So like you don't look at that and say, well, you know, you need to be more balanced and pick a position in between like radical abolitionism and we should own humans as property. Like that's not the appropriate conclusion or Nazi Germany. You're right. So the solution is not just, hey, let's be nuanced. Um, the question really does come down to there's no principle that's going to guide how we should decide what positions to take. It really is just a it's a normative issue. It's a truth based issue. Like you have to figure out which position is true before you decide whether or not to accept it. You and, can't and that's just why say, you have to yeah. check these biases. You can't just say what? You can't just say the way to arrive at truth is this principle of anytime you find two extremes, pick a view in the middle. That's never going to get you to truth. Or we should always err on the side of caution or always err on the side of extremity. Those principles are not true principles. They're not going to give you truth. They're going to, they might sometimes get you at the true position, but sometimes... The true position is extreme on the right. Sometimes it's extreme on the left. Sometimes it's somewhere in the middle. Sometimes it's closer to the right than the left. And there's no overarching principle that's going to get you to truth every single time. So I think it's it's a lost cause to try to give some overarching procedure or form to, hey, if you want a true view, just do this. No, it's just, you have to just figure out what the true thing is and believe it. And that's really difficult. And it's never going to be as simple as conforming to a principle. How do you think about this in terms of persuading other people of a position? So this is more like how we think, but let's say that you are able to check your biases. It's it's hard to check those cognitive biases when it comes to, I mean, it's hard, you can't do that for somebody else. And that can be frustrating when you realize, oh, this is a cognitive bias you're applying to this particular argument or this particular way you're viewing the world. I don't even know, sometimes I get discouraged. I'm like, wow, like, I, I don't know how we have any dialogue if people are so, you know, tied to these ways of, of, of their minds being driven a certain way. Well, I think one thing that's reassuring is a lot of positions, it's easy to see why people think they're true. Um, especially if you're talking to rational, reasonable people, people disagree about vaccines, people disagree about who to vote for. It's not always like... Sometimes the positions themselves could be ridiculous, but I can see why someone would believe that, right? I could see why they want to ally themselves with a particular tribe or they have allegiance to a particular party or they're trying to tow a specific kind of party line or ideological line. So being aware of those kinds of motivations for why it is that people adopt certain beliefs and practices, I think goes a long way to... Um, helping us discuss across those party lines. Like putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is huge. One assignment that I often give my students is, hey, pick an issue that you have really, really strong convictions about and you think you are right about and go find someone who disagrees with you, whether it be online, whether it be your roommate, whether it be someone and talk to them about it 
for 30 minutes, go read something about it, and then write down one thing that you learn, one thing that is true on that side that you didn't know is true. And oftentimes they come, I mean, it doesn't have to change your mind, but I think it's super important to be able to see what the strong points are and what the best arguments are on the other side. And we don't do that enough. And I think that's that's a really, really important step in dialogue, discussion. And I think a lot of our societal um, ills would be maybe a little bit alleviated if we did more of that. Have you found that to be personally helpful yourself? Yeah, I, I try to, for any position that I hold very confidently, to try to be aware of like the strongest arguments on the other side. And I think a lot of us, a lot of us shield ourselves from the strongest arguments on the other side because just subconsciously we're worried maybe, maybe that'll shake us, maybe that'll rattle us, maybe that'll show us something that will make our current position less appealing, right? And so there's a kind of fear. Um, this is why intellectual virtues are important, right? Like bravery, being being willing to encounter uh, opposing evidence, being willing to open yourself up to objections, to difficult conversations uh, in relationships or even just friendships, having difficult conversations with people. There, there is an intellectual virtue of bravery that we don't have. And that prevents us from opening ourselves up to the most uh, the strongest evidence on the other side to difficult conversations in general that might make us better people. And so I think a lot of us just are naturally cowards. And so we don't expose ourselves to um, the best that's out there. And we sort of live in our little bubbles and we don't have difficult conversations, but it ends up making us worse people and not great conversational partners. And it we build these silos and these echo chambers where we just surround ourselves with, with yes men and people who always agree with us. And it leads to uh, it leads to polarization. It leads to lots of bad things. One of the hard things, though, is I think there's a fatigue where it's like, well, you've got to read nine thousand books now. You've got to view everything from everyone else's perspective. That it feels like conversation can't happen until every person becomes a PhD in a particular situation. Now that's an exaggeration, but I think it's yeah. exhausting. You know, it's like look at both sides of the issue. But it's like, well. <laughs> what's the what what's the objective information I'm getting? Is it objective? Is even the stuff that I'm supposed to read unbiased? I think people have lost trust in the fact that there are unbiased sources of information. So everything becomes a political play, you know? Um, to, to think about an issue on abortion, if somebody's unbiased and writing about it, there's a bunch of philosophical assumptions built into whether you're pro-choice or pro-life that just stating the facts is not going to help you with. And so I guess you would, if you were pro-choice, you'd want to talk to a pro-life person to see where they're coming from. I don't even know if people are equipped today to be able to have fruitful discussions where they learn from each other. I think you're right. I would just say, my point is just that before you adopt a really, really strong conclusion, maybe, maybe this is one way to put it, your confidence in your beliefs should be proportioned to the evidence. And a lot of us have really, really strong convictions that are not like proportion to the evidence. Unless like we have this well, unless the disagreement is how much evidence is there or a disagreement about that, yeah, like what if it's like there's not enough evidence to say that. It's like, well, I think there is. And then I mean, I so the, like one one really really paradigmatic case here is just people who defend pro-choice views, for example. Because it is in like in, in a lot of circles, in academic circles, in like, you know, liberal elite circles, it just is the default view, right? Like this is what you're expected to believe. Um, but a lot of these people 
haven't, a lot of them haven't stopped to consider what the other side has to say. Um, I guarantee, and I, I've, I've had experience with this with students, asking someone who is vehemently super, super convicted about the pro-choice position, what do you think is the strongest argument on the other side? They just draw a blank. Like they haven't even stopped to consider. And I think that's the problem. That that's That's more my worry here. How can you so vehemently hold on to a view without having subjected it to any kind of reflection without thinking, okay, there are like reasonable people who disagree with me. What is the strongest argument? I'm, I'm not saying like you have to change your view instantaneously, but how can you hold a position with a lot of conviction and confidence without ever having pause to think about like, what is the, like, what, what is an argument against my position? What's the alternative, right? Like, why do people disagree with me? And I think those kinds of questions are useful and we don't do that often enough. That, that, that's my very conservative claim here. Something uh, that Jonathan Hay talks about in The Righteous Mind is that conservatives tend to have a better understanding of liberals and what they believe and why they believe it than vice versa. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think that's true. And I think it's true because in certain circles, conservative voices tend to be the minority voice. And as the minority voice, you're often pressured and opposed. And so you have to sharpen your arguments and you're constantly exposed to the best arguments on the other side, the liberal side, because that's just the default and the status quo. So you're constantly being inundated with, this is the liberal position. This is the position on the left. These are the arguments. And as someone who is the minority, like, like you don't even have to go out to search for what the best arguments on the other side, you're being confronted with them daily. Hmm. So that just automatically sharpens your position. You're constantly in contact with the other side. And that's not always true for the dominant majority position, right? They're not being exposed to the minority voices that might have some really good arguments to offer, but it's just, it's not there. It's not as prominent in the marketplace of ideas. And so this is not just with conservatives and liberals. Any place where you find a minority view, they tend to have access to, this is why when you talk to conspiracy theorists, for example, sometimes their views sound very, very compelling, right? Because they're the ones listening to the majority consensus views all the time and they've got ready responses, right? They're like, well, yeah, but like, you see that the flag doesn't fly on the on the moon, right? And you're just like, oh, I never thought of that. How did you, right? That's because like, you've never stopped to challenge the status quo. They have, like they're, they're constantly inundated with the status quo. And so they're coming up with responses, whether they're good or bad, that just is the world that they live in, right? That's interesting because that is true. And it's almost like you need somebody who's very versed in the conspiracy theory. Just like they don't have anyone who's ready-made challenging answers. So it right. gives them the illusion of explanatory power. Right. You know, I mean, I, I yeah. guess it could be sort of like when you, um, you know, I guess you're cage stage Calvinist, you become a Calvinist. And a lot of these, a lot of people haven't thought about it. And then they're like, well, what about this and that? And you're just ready. You're ready. Cause you're always around right. people who disagree right. with it. Yeah. But you don't realize that you're being inaccurate until you meet somebody who also really understands Reformed theology and knows right. your arguments. And then you realize, oh, I shouldn't have been as confident or as arrogant in what I was saying because I was punching down, in his, right. essentially. Right. right? And yeah. so I guess it's if you're a but, – but that is true. I think it is more difficult if your culture is one way about whether highly liberal or highly conservative to – challenge yourself to 
sharp, not, not agree, but to sharpen your arguments against the best that the other side has to offer. Yeah. And, and hopefully it makes your arguments more forceful. Right. Well, yeah, this is I mean, this is one argument for why free speech is important in a society. This is John Stuart Mill's famous argument for why you need free speech. Once a view becomes the dominant majority view, there's a kind of temptation towards complacency. And if you snuff out dissenting views, you snuff out the possibility of correction. Right. You do need dissenting voices because it forces it forces society to stay sharp, essentially, and it doesn't allow stagnation. And so multiple voices increases the probability of sharpening views. This is why a marketplace of ideas is so important. And if you just snuff out dissenting views, you stagnate and you rule out the possibility of growth, correction, sharpening, these kinds of things. So any endeavor that does not allow for like healthy, healthy disagreement, healthy sharpening, uh, there's always a worry there that it's just going to stagnate. And you're like, you got to be you got to question the motivation of a, a group that never allows for dissenting views. Um, and now, like, there's a qualification there. Sometimes there are some views that we just, we don't, like, we shouldn't listen to. Like, there are some voices that are not worth listening to. So, again, it, it's a matter of truth. Like, determining which views are worthwhile is a question about truth. Um, so, it's not just a procedure. This might get into a whole new can of worms, but different people are going to argue about what voices are worthwhile. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, <laughs> it seems like an, it seems like an infinite regress of authority. And maybe that's another, we should, we should talk about uh, expertise and institutions and, and, and their, their place in society on another episode that we're we'll sure. But uh, at least for now, there's a lot of food for thought here. That's a challenging thing. I do feel like my own aversion, I, I kind of don't want to hear the other side yeah, jokingly, you know, like like with the with when we're talking about like is football unethical? I mean, there is. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm totally just not wanting to entertain it, and uh, you know, it's that's hard. The, the search for truth is costly, and you know, sometimes it's better just to not not broach the subject at all. But this is why we we praise and we look up to people who, the person who's curious and on a quest for truth. I mean, there is something admirable about that, like putting yourself out there and being willing to open yourself up to scrutiny, to rejection, to, to finding out that your view is false, that, that which you were super convicted about and, and lived your whole life out and, and staked a position on, whether it's academically or your reputation. And then you're like, I, I genuinely, I'm, I'm open to being corrected about this. That is huge. That kind of bravery is rare. And that's why we find it so admirable when people change their views on something, when somebody comes out and publicly recants, when somebody undergoes a religious conversion. That's huge. It means that I've opened myself up to uh, the possibility that I'm wrong, right? Like, you know, this as someone who came into Christianity, there's a kind of risk there. I'm, sure. I'm going to explore this thing and I'm opening myself up to the possibility that my entire worldview up to this point might be wrong. That is huge. Like that, that's an act of intellectual courage. Oh, oh here, that, here, yeah. Here, this, this reminds me. Okay. So this is kind of what I was getting at. Um, when, when does the search stop? So you you, you have a, a, a strong conviction, you see the other side, you nuance it, but then it's like, at some point you got to make decisions in life and you can't just keep going back and forth, seeing the best arguments from every side ad nauseum. I mean, there's so many voices and so many good arguments back and forth. I think that's where people get lost. They're saying like, I could look at all these different perspectives, but like, 
I also have to work a job and I've got kids and I've got, you know, family and all these things. Yeah. How, how, how does how can you even manage it? Yeah. I, I, I totally feel that and not, not everyone's an academic. You're like, so we don't, don't have kids, don't lives. get married, don't have a job except for thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Just all become academic professional philosophers and all your problems are solved. No, I, yeah. I, I, I totally feel that. And I guess two principles that are useful here is don't treat every issue as if it's equally important. I think that's that's something that's huge. Not everything is a primary issue. Learn to, and this is something that will also take some practice, divide things into levels of importance. And so, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on, on how to think about these things and which, which sorts of hot button issues are primary, secondary, tertiary, and how much attention should I devote to these different issues, uh, vaccines versus abortion versus whatever. And, you know, there's a kind of ranking there and they're not all equal. And that, that even takes wisdom in, in deciding what's a primary issue, what's not. Um, the second thing is, this is the importance of intellectual communities and even just denominations and churches. And if you are inhabiting a truth preserving and truth distributing community, then that offloads some of the pressure off your shoulders. So that mm. I don't have to be the one who's constantly reinventing the wheel, who's figuring out what I should believe on issues X, Y, and Z in bioethics, in technology, in social media, in like, this is, this is the importance of tradition. Like this is why we are not atomistic individuals. This is one problem that I think American individual has, has led to, like everyone's an expert. Everyone thinks and has to rediscover all of these truths on their own. And it's no surprise that we come up with lots of different divergent answers, most of which are wrong. And we see like the world that is a result of that kind of philosophy. But I mean, I think, I think Christianity is a truth preserving institution. I think it gets a lot right. I think that uh, there's a lot of reliable prescriptions in how to think about ethics and sexuality and the human person and human nature and community. Um, and divorcing oneself from a truth-preserving community puts a lot of pressure on you to do all the work. And that, I think, is a really, really uncomfortable place to be. Some people might enjoy that because it, it, on one hand, it means you can design smorgasbord style the kind of worldview and lifestyle that you want. But on the other hand, for someone who's a little bit more self-aware, they go like, I don't want the pressure for that. I don't want to be the one to decide what are my views on IVF and abortion and sexuality and religion and all these sorts of things. Like, why why should I be the one to come up with all that on my, on my own? Like, removing yourself from tradition is really, really difficult but, and puts but a lot does, of pressure on you. But you, you just mentioned how higher institutions are, are more liberal and the, the idea of echo chambers. So like, on the one hand, you're like, I want to kind of offload this and just trust tradition. And But what if, you know, if you did that, would you listen to the conservative voices that are the minority if the tradition and institutions are very liberal? Because then now I, you're offloading. And, and so you, you now you're going against the, dissenting how do you maintain dissenting voices while preserving that principle of institution there's i mean there's a question of how to structure a society and then there's a question of on the individual level how do i decide what kinds of beliefs i should adopt and right. there like one one shortcut is find a truth preserving institution and there you got to like that that's a very open question like what institutions are truth preserving and i'd say you know christianity is largely truth preserving we should all inhabit that community and uh, then there's like you can even fine grain that more denominations and traditions within that that might be more reliable on you know delivering certain truths about ethics and the human person but 
Yeah, it, you can't survive as an atomistic individual in this kind of world and expect to not have a bunch of pressure on your shoulders when it comes to deciding what sorts of beliefs and positions to adopt about all of these new issues that are, are cropping up. Um, it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of pressure. And I guess you would say that you'd want an intellectual community that allows ascending voices, that helps clarify a general consensus. So you could think about the church tradition, sure. how it's been clarified by heretics. Uh, in the sense that, yeah, not, I don't know if you want to allow heretics, but but the discussion was what clarified consensus. And so I guess you want institutions that are dedicated to the pursuit of truth um, while allowing dissenting voices. And then if you as an individual go, okay, here's the generally res uh, received truth about a certain issue. Here are some dissenting voices. So to the degree that there are dissenting voices, I should have a looseness to what's passed down, but also having a comp, like you can have a confidence without certainty. I, yeah, so with the dissenting voices, I mean, my personal view would be that dissenting voices are important and should be allowed where there is already insufficient evidence that we don't know about the issue in question. So like this is why in science, for example, science is never a matter of certainty. Like we're always reworking and rethinking views and theories and like that's that's how the scientific endeavor grows. You need like marginal voices to like, you know, here's an experiment that shows actually everything that we thought about this is wrong, right? Like that's, the question is like in Christian theology, what issues are still open, right? And so that's actually a normative question. Will, will there ever be a discovery that shows us that actually the hypostatic union is not the right way to understand the incarnation? I think no, right? Like that is a settled question. So we shouldn't entertain dissenting voices on questions that are settled, mm -hmm. but then even deciding which are the settled questions, which are the open questions, like that's, that's huge in and of itself. And we can debate and argue about that, but that it's another normative issue. It's another question that requires us to know what is in fact true and what is in fact open and then be able to judge according to that. Gotcha. Well, we're, we're going to continue this conversation. I think this is touching on a lot of important things and uh, appreciate your thoughts on this. And if you guys want to check out The Calling of the American Mind, it's a great book by Jonathan Haidt. It's really helpful, especially in our current you know situation with all the all the debates and the political tensions, all that stuff. So pick up the book. I think you'll find it helpful. Paul, thanks for joining us. And we'll be back at it soon. Make sure that you subscribe to That'll Preach Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. And uh, make sure you write a review, pass it on to your friends, and let them know all the good stuff you're learning on this wonderful show. See you guys next week. <laughs>